0: welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splevik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Police Say, Dubuque Crime Trends Mixed in 23. Most Serious Crimes Against Persons and Property in the City Increased by Roughly 7% from the Year Prior. It's written by Grace Needland. Crimes Against Both People and Property ticked upward last year in Dubuque while still remaining below early pandemic era highs. The reported number of the most serious crimes against persons and property in the city increased by roughly 7% in 2023 from the year prior according to recently released data from the Dubuque Police Department. Most of that increase can be attributed to a marked uptick in thefts and aggravated assaults which combined to overshadow more moderate decreases in other reported offenses. Every year, there's a little bit in, of shifting from here to there in terms of crime, said Dubuque Police Department Captain Brendan Welsh. You're always going to see those numbers ebb and flow as criminals adjust to citizens' defense tactics and law enforcement strategies. The department's year-end data includes reports of both Part 1 and Part 2 offenses. Part 1 offenses refer to the most serious crimes against people, murder, sexual assault, robbery, and aggravated assaults, Part 2 crimes cover property-related crimes, including theft, burglary, and theft burglary related to a vehicle. The total number of Part 1 crimes reported in Dubuque in 2023 was 253, compared to 225 in 2022. While the figure represents a year-over-year increase, it still hovers below a 2020 spike in which 267 similar offenses were reported. Most of the recent increases came from a nearly 37% jump in aggravated assaults between 2022 and 2023. Last year, a total of 171 aggravated assaults were reported. Wells said it is difficult to pinpoint the reason for the increase because such offenses usually happen at random, such as bar fights, or within residents' homes in situations of ongoing domestic or intimate partner violence. It's really hard to predict those kinds of crimes, Welsh said. We're obviously above our yearly average last year, but I really can't put my finger on exactly why. Other Part 1 crimes saw a decrease last year, including a notable 68% drop in robberies and a more moderate 5% decrease in reported sexual assaults. Riverview Center Executive Director Gwen Bramlett Hecker, however, said she was taking the latter with a grain of salt, given the fact that instances of sexual violence are widely underreported. It's not a stretch to say that sexual violence is one of, if not perhaps the most, underrated underreported of all criminal offenses, she said. It can be incredibly difficult for a survivor to come forward. Bramlett Hecker added that there are multiple reasons an individual might not report an incident of sexual violence, such as a fear of retribution or a concern that they will not be believed or supported through the reporting process. Dubuque's police statistics also include two homicides in 2023, both of which involved firearms. The first was Lonnie E. Burns, age 31, of Dubuque, who was shot outside his home in the 700 block of Romburg Avenue, early February the 7th. The second was the shooting death of Alan Taylor, age 36, of Dubuque on July the 9th in the 2500 block of Broadway Street. Five people were charged in relation to Burns's death, and their cases are at various places in the ju- judicial process. No suspects have been arrested yet in Taylor's death. Reported instances of nearly all Part 2 property offenses decreased last year, including burglary, burglary to a vehicle, and vehicular theft. Despite that, Part 2 offenses still rose from 1,239 in 2022 to 1,319 in 2023 because of a 20% increase in reported instances of theft. Welsh said that fact is somewhat contextualized by the differing legal definitions of theft, burglary, and robbery. Theft means taking someone's property, but does not involve the use of force. Burglary means illegally entering a property in order to steal from it. Robbery is the most serious of the three offenses and includes the taking or attempts to take another's property through use of threats or force. If I step into your yard and take your bike, it's theft. If I go into your garage and take it, that's burglary, Welsh explained. If I threaten you for it or push you down, that's robbery. Welsh said the annual statistics are used internally to best allocate the department's resources and officers' patrol routes and training schedules. The information also is shared with the public to help people to best understand the types and level of risk present in the community and what, if any, preventive or proactive measures are available such as self-defense classes or home security systems. Decker Fab, owner of DBQ Tech Experts, works with both residential and business clients to install and maintain security cameras at area businesses and homes. In recent years, he said residential interest in items such as doorbell cameras or motion sensor lights is on the rise. For local businesses, the norm is more high-tech wired systems with on-site recording and storage. Some people install them as a convenience to know when a package arrives or something. For other people, it's a matter of peace of mind and having that extra level of security, Fab said. As law enforcement and citizens alike have taken those steps and others to reduce more forcible crimes such as burglary and robbery, both of which decreased last year, Welsh said it is likely that perpetrators instead are turning to theft to meet their goals. With criminals, it's kind of like water. They're going to take the path of least resistance, he said. If they see local residents or police officers proactively finding ways to prevent one thing, they'll adjust their tactics. Then we as law enforcement adjust to that too. Our next article is entitled Mercy One Offers New Behavioral Health Program Partial Hospitalization Provides Treatment for Those Who Don't Need Full Inpatient Care. It's written by Maia Bond. A recent addition to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center's behavioral health care aims to fill a gap in treatment for patients. RC1 officials recently announced their launch of a partial hospitalization program in partnership with medical associates that provides behavioral health treatment for up to 10 adults from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Monday through Thursday for an average of two weeks per patient. The program offers an in-between option for residents who don't need full inpatient care but aren't ready to be completely discharged to receive outpatient care. This helps us bridge the gap, said Kim Irish, director of psychiatric services at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. That way the patient doesn't go home, start doing poorly, get overwhelmed, feel like they have failed, and then end up back in the ER. This kind of gradually supports them. The daytime programming offers patients various activities, including group psychotherapy, tai chi, yoga, music therapy, art therapy, nutrition, occupational therapy, spiritual care, psychological assessments, and doctor visits. A lot of other outside resources come in and help to speak to the patients, Irish said. They do a lot of goal setting, reframing negative thinking, and it just sets them up so they're ready to go home. One of those local resources is the Dubuque chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Health, Mental Illness, excuse me. Brittany Farber, President and CEO of the local NAMI chapter, said NAMI's staff attend the programming to educate patients on the resources the organization offers. Farber said Mercy One's new transitional option between inpatient and outpatient means area residents are better supported and have greater access to the treatment they need. It gives us another option for more intensive care that is a step down from a long-term care facility or being inpatient, Farber said. I think it's very good. Michael Porosky, chair of the psychology and psychiatry department at the Dubuque-based Medical Associates, provides medical supervision for the partial hospitalization program. He said there was a need for this kind of transitional care in the tri-state area. We really wanted to build something that was very robust, heavily focused on therapy with the big goal of helping folks who are really not stable enough for outpatient. Or they're really struggling on the outpatient side but they don't need to be on a locked door inpatient unit, Porosky said. Porosky said the program has been extremely successful so far largely thanks to a dedicated and passionate team of staff. He said he has seen patients who have struggled with their mental health for years make enormous progress through the program. Patients who have been hospitalized multiple times who typically make some improvements but then decline again have found the program to be exactly the support they needed. I've had a number of people say to me who have been entrenched in depression and anxiety for years, This is the best thing I've ever done, Petrosky said. Irish said Mercy One used to have a partial hospitalization program in the 1990s and early 2000s. However, insurance companies stopped paying for that level of care, so the program was disbanded, she said. In recent years, insurance companies have started to pay for partial hospitalization programs again, Irish said. So Mercy One has been building up for the last two years toward the relaunch of the program last fall. Qualifying patients can be referred to the program by a nurse practitioner, psychiatrist, or a primary care provider and must have a psychiatric diagnosis. To refer a patient, providers can fill out a form. A similar program called the Intensive Outpatient Program is available at Unity Point Health Findlay Hospital. That program runs for two to three months, three days a week, for three hours a day according to an emailed statement from Heather Muntz, Program Coordinator and Lead Psychotherapist. The program is available to adults affected by depression, anxiety, or other emotional distress and is available through self-referral or referral from a health care provider or individual's support system. Referrals can be made by calling area code 563-589-2309. The program includes therapy, medication, review, and consults with a psychiatrist and referrals for follow-up care when the program is complete, Munz said in the statement. And election's office moves to new site. County officials hope the new location in the former Hendricks Feed and Seed building will be more accessible and efficient. This is written by Benjamin Fisher. Staff from several Dubuque County departments spent Tuesday and Wednesday moving electronic Elections Department equipment and voting supplies into their new home on Central Avenue. The new Dubuque County Elections offices in the 800 block of Central Avenue used to house Hendricks Feed and Seed Company and still looks like it in many ways. Metal sheeting on the floor leads out of the freight elevators and old farm supply ads still hang on some walls. You wouldn't believe how many people still come in for seed or something from Hendricks, Dubuque County Auditor Kevin Drogado, who oversees the Elections Department, said Wednesday. I get to say what we're bringing here and then gently direct them to Hendricks Feed and Seed Company's new location on Kerper Boulevard. The county took ownership from the property from the city of Dubuque, which purchased it in 2021, and later traded it to the county in exchange for an adjoining county-owned parking lot. The new county space, which is expected to be ready for voters this spring, will allow the Elections Department to complete numerous goals, consolidate the number of buildings it occupies, offer voters an accessible one-stop shop for voting needs, eliminate county leases, and more. Until the ongoing move, county elections officially operated out of a space adjacent to the auditor's office on the fourth floor of the Dubuque County Courthouse. But because the department's needs exceeded that space, the county also had to lease an elections annex and store equipment and supplies in the old jail next to the courthouse. Dragado and County Deputy Commissioner of Elections, Jenny Hillary, said the disjointed nature of the department's previous space led to regular inefficiencies. Say we ran out of envelopes when preparing to send out absentee ballots or registration cards, Hillary said. Well, we didn't have any real storage in the courthouse, so someone would have to go downstairs and drive over to the elections annex to get what they could carry and then come back. You're talking 20 minutes at least. Drogado said the longtime system also had been confusing for voters who consistently did not know where they needed to go for what service, including voter registration, address changes, early voting, and candidacy filing. Now everything will be done right here, he said Wednesday. The new office offers automatic front doors at grade with the sidewalk outside. Voters, whatever their mobility, will enter the open historic building and approach a newly built counter that includes a section low enough for people using wheelchairs. They will be greeted during election season by one of several temporary workers hired by the county and collect any materials they need or conduct other business. If they are voting, they then will turn around and head to voting spaces in the same room fill out their ballot on new machines purchased by the auditor's office in the current fiscal year which electronically tabulate votes and print out a paper copy of the voters choices turn in their ballot and leave it will create an easy flow for voters which we just couldn't offer before dragato said in another space near the front doors dragato plans for a conference room set up where the department can train elections officials temporary staff precinct officials and others ahead of elections. Further to the rear of the main room, a long table will be set up with voting equipment stored beneath where elections staff can perform mandated tests on the equipment before voting begins. The new building also offers a great deal of storage. The department has a lot of gear necessary to conduct elections, mostly Most clearly, the cube-shaped rolling cages packed with the necessary equipment for each of the county's election day precincts. But the department is also closely restricted by state and federal laws which require, for instance, the secure storage of any absentee ballots received until they can be counted after polls close on election night. Those regulations require storage space as well as security measures. In the election department, new space Each interior door will be accessible by key card, so use can be reviewed. The new building also has interior and exterior security cameras aimed so they cannot capture voters' ballots, but so election officials and any other activity also can be reviewed if needed. Drogado said he hopes the accessibility, security, and expected efficiency of the new office will comfort the county voters. We want to keep it inviting. We want to keep it transparent, he said. We want people to know where we are, when they need us. We think this will be better all around. Dragato said the space should be ready with plenty of time ahead of the May 15th when early voting begins for the June 4th primary election for county, state, and congressional races. The county has also been able to save money renovating the new office by trusting the work to county facilities department staff rather than contracting it out. A county employee built the new counter in the building, in part by finding and reusing spare corrugated metal with which Hendricks covered the front room's rear wall and which the county is keeping as a decorative element. Next up is an article entitled, State House Candidates File Year End Finance Reports. It's written by Benjamin Fisher of the Telegraph Herald. End-of-year campaign finance disclosures for 2023 show some early fundraising successes and spending on the part of candidates running for the Iowa legislature this year. The reports, filed with the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board, showed a quick surge of fundraising in contested East-Central Iowa legislative races, even when candidates had not announced campaigns until late in the year. But reports also showed high contributions, too, so far, unopposed incumbents whose influence has yet ris- has risen in their parties in recent years. Bradley versus McKean. Longtime former Iowa Representative Andy McKean of Anamosa recently announced a return to the ballot and reported receiving $52,629 in 2023, the most of any area candidate in a contested race for a state legislature seat. McKean lost a bid for re-election in 2020 to incumbent Iowa Stephen Bradley, Republican from Cascade, after McKean until 2019, a lifetime Republican, switched to the Democratic Party over objections to former President Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party. McKean is running as a Democrat again and began fundraising in late October, despite not publicly announcing his run until late November. From October to December 31st, McKean's contributions came from all over the country, as was the case in 2020. McKean's campaign spent $1,891 in 2023, ending with $50,738. Bradley received $14,694 in 2023, mostly from individual donors around eastern Iowa. Other than substantial contributions from PACs representing his dentistry profession and credit unions. Bradley spent $5,350 in 2023, ending with $11,503 cash on hand. Eisenhart versus Smith Incumbent Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhart, a Democrat from Dubuque. Received $16,567 in 2023 for his 2024 run for reelection. Eisenhart's campaign for the common good also spent $9,635 in 2023, ending the year with $32,056 cash on hand. In mid November, Republican economics professor Jennifer Smith announced another run to represent Dubuque in the legislature but reported no contributions in 2023. But she did enter the year with $10,387 from her 2022 campaign when she narrowly lost to Eisenhart and spent $1,236 in 2023, mostly on basic campaign needs. Smith ended the year with $9,151 cash on hand. Townsend, longtime labor organizer Tom Townsend, who announced his run for the seat of Iowa Senator Pam Yocum, a Democrat from Dubuque, raised $43,200 in 2023, despite waiting to formally announce his candidacy until after Yocum announced in the Telegraph Herald on January 12th that she would not run for a fifth Senate term. Townsend received all donations from November 30th to December 31st and almost all from trade unions. I have been fighting for working folks for over 30 years, Townsend said in his release announcing his candidacy. In the Iowa Senate, I will continue advocating for labor and all working Iowans. Townsend spent just $19 in 2023 heading into the election year with $43,181 on hand. Dubuque County GOP Chairman John Dara told the Telegraph-Herald last week that his party's search was on for a a Republican opponent to Townsend. I think we'll be able to field a good candidate, he said. We're certainly looking for that, and we're actively talking to a couple of people. Lundgren, Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, a Republican from Piasta, received more contributions than any other state house candidate in the area. $66,184 in 2023. According to the report, Lundgren received individual contributions from folks at fundraisers throughout the year and, as a high-profile incumbent in her caucus and chairwoman of the House Commerce Committee, Lundgren also received larger contributions from numerous PAC sectors. Lundgren's campaign spent $12,262 in 2023, largely for campaign basics and reimbursing personal expenses, plus a trip to the American Legislative Exchange Council meeting, a conservative nonprofit which creates model legislation for states. Lundgren ended the year with $58,494. No challenger has announced their candidacy in Lundgren's district. James. Iowa Representative Lindsey James, a Democrat from Dubuque, is also received a healthy $32,645 in 2023. Most contributions were from Dubuque area individual donors, but James is also a high-profile incumbent in her caucus, elected House Minority Whip in 2022, and so also received money from PACs, specifically those associated with justice policy, renewable energy, veterans groups, trade unions, and more. James spent $25,618 in 2023. $20,000 donated to the Iowa Democratic Party. No challenger has announced candidacy in James's district. Iowa Representative Norlin Mom- Momsen, a uh, Republican from DeWitt, received $16,930 in 2023, spent $2,373, and ended the year with $14,019 cash on hand. Iowa Representative Craig Johnson, a Republican from Independence, received $12,120, spent $4,033, and ended the year with $15,296. Iowa Representative Ann Osmondson, a a Republican from Volga, received $2,250 in 2023, spent $2,439, and ended with $10,383. Other area state senators' districts are not up for election this year. A couple short articles under the News in Brief heading. Police say three arrested after multiple agencies respond to large compound during Dubuque area investigation. Police said law enforcement agencies spent about six hours at a property near Dubuque after the execution of a warrant Wednesday morning. Dubuque Police Department Captain Brendan Welsh said officials executed the warrant at 9860 Katy Cove. The operation was related to an ongoing investigation, Welsh said. Dubuque Police were assisted by the Dubuque County Sheriff's Department and the Dubuque Drug Task Force, Welsh said a police tactical entry team was used to conduct an initial search for people at the property which welsh described as a large compound once the property was secured investigators took over the scene for an evidentiary search welsh said welsh said officers had cleared the scene uh, at about 1:30 p.m. after about 6 hours after the start of the operation police activities on the property had been conducted without incident welsh said Well said. Three people were arrested at the scene. Nathan F. Stark, age 46, of 9860 Katie Cove, was arrested at 9.24 a.m. at his residence on a charge of interference with official acts. Sean R.T. Kramer, age 36, of 9860 Katie Cove, and Tammy S. Tittle, age 50, no permanent address, both were arrested at approximately 9.10 a.m. at the Katy Cove residence on warrants unrelated to Wednesday's investigation, Welsh said. Welsh said the additional charges are anticipated in the case, but due to the complex nature of the investigation, they may come after some time, he said. And police say charges for live-in boyfriend of woman whose infant son died in Dubuque. The live-in boyfriend of a Dubuque woman charged in connection with the death of her infant son now also faces charges related to the June incident. Khalil A. Holloway, age 24, of 3240 Getty Terrace, number 202, was arrested at 8 a.m. Tuesday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on charges of three counts of child endangerment. Court documents state that Holloway lived with Valesa T. Matlock, age 24, Who was arrested January 17th on a warrant charging child endangerment leading to death, neglect, or abandonment of a dependent person and two counts of child endangerment. Court documents state that Holloway and Matlock have two mutual children and Matlock has another child who also lived in the couple's apartment. The couple's two-month-old son was found unresponsive June 10th at the family's residence and subsequently was pronounced dead that day at Unity Point Health Findlay Hospital. Documents state that the overall condition of the couple's home was poor, and police also found signs of marijuana use within the apartment documents state. Holloway told police he smoked marijuana while in the apartment and claimed ownership of drug paraphernalia, police found at the scene documents state. Matlock has a preliminary hearing scheduled for Monday, January 29th in the case. Now it's time to turn to the opinion page and we've got another view column entitled Immigrant Man Finds Hope at Homeless Shelter. It's written by Tim Trinkle who is a community college teacher, resident of Dubuque, and the author of two books about. In the chapel window a cross hung to the street. The cross was there, three-foot square. From the street the mission's beam of redemption signaled the faithful like the star that led the magi. In the little prayer space, a small table served as a tabernacle. The wall nearby was covered with scenes from Christ's life. There was the angel speaking to Mary, the washing of feet, and Christ standing to preach. A slight five-foot-tall Vietnamese man sat in a chair. His hands were folded and his eyes were intent. He was aged 50, with a balding pate and sparse whiskers, circles under his eyes, and thin skin. He was being questioned about smoking. Where are you from? The mission director asked southeast asia replied the immigrant how did you get here in 1975 when saigon went down and it was then ho chi minh city we left we went down river and came to another boat and went out to sea i was 20 years old the vietnamese gentleman twirled his hands ever so slightly he folded his legs he calmly continued he spoke of obstacle and children shot of the endless sea He said he was lucky, but he'd lived his entire life with loneliness and his true companion feeling cast out and alone. I'm going to California to take care of some things. I want to drive a truck. I went to school here and became a farrier, but did not get the certificate. And oh well, I plan to get a CDL license. Maybe I'm not so smart, but I think I can do it. Maybe it does not pay so well, but I think I will be good at it. And I think I will like it. It cost $4,000. The spring air drafted through the window, and it was chilly. Tam was a smart man, though he hid that in the silence. I remember when I was a boy, and I would carry two 10-gallon buckets of water, one on each side of my bike. I had a 10-speed, but the roads were muddy and had gullies. It was hard to carry those buckets. Water is important. I would get the water and bring it to my family so they could bathe and drink and, you know, tam said he was from the mekong delta the south and he talked about the incredible violence that beset all the killing of everyone as the north moved in like a great snake swallowing everyone he said he couldn't sleep that night he lit a cigar and took a few puffs he was an honest man he did not deny it when i was a boy i never wore shoes and the paths were stones and the briars and i cut my feet i don't know why He trailed away from that as if he couldn't complain but without but being without shoes in the underbrush and walking everywhere on the sharp stones cut his feet he said his feet bled life is difficult he said after he spoke in the chapel he thanked the mission employees for listening he apologized i am grateful for what you have done for me tam never complained about what he was given and thanked everyone before he left the rescue mission No one spoke of him again, yet prayer was sent behind him for peace. Before he left, after he had been given the consequence of moving to a cot in the hall, one of the homeless men said he would stay on his cot so Tam could stay in his room. For his last days, the man was safe and enjoyed the comfort of a mattress and the kindness of another homeless man. And again, this was written by Tim Trankel, a community college teacher, resident of Dubuque, and the author of two books about Dubuque. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on uh, IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Blavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now it's time for today's obituaries, and we'll start with Sandra J. Wagner, age 82, of Dubuque, who died Sunday, January the 21st, 2024, at the Stonehill Cairns Care Center in Dubuque, surrounded by her loving family. Visitation will be held from 9 a.m. until 11.15 a.m. on Saturday, January the 27th, 2024, at St. Joseph the Worker Catholic Church. The Mass of Christian burial for Sandra will be at 11.30 a.m. on Saturday, January the 27th, 2024 at St. Joseph the Worker Catholic Church with Father Herb Pins as the celebrant and Father Brian Dellert as the con-celebrant. Burial will be at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque at a later date. In lieu of flowers, a memorial has been established for Catholic Charities. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences set to the family by visiting Sandra's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. Next, we remember Gary A. Harley Hansen, age 68, of Dubuque, who died Wednesday, January the 24th, at his home in Dubuque. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. until 11 a.m. Friday, January the 26th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Gary A. Harley Hansen Memorial Fund. Condolences can be sent to the family by visiting Harley's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. Now we remember Robert Bob Capus, age 92, of Stockton, Illinois, who died on Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 11 a.m., Monday, January the 29th, at Christ Lutheran Church in Stockton, where services will follow. Interment will be held in Ladies' Union Cemetery in Stockton. Herman Funeral Home of Stockton is assisting the family. Now, we remember Kenneth F. Holman of Geneseo, Illinois, formerly Galena, Illinois, who was called home Monday, January the 22nd, 2024, at the Allure of Geneseo Care Center in Geneseo, Illinois. The funeral service will be held at noon, Saturday, January the 27th, 2024, at the Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena, where friends may call after 10 a.m. until the time of service. A Masonic service will begin at 11.50 a.m. prior to the service. Military honors will be accorded by the VFW Post No. 2665 and American Legion Post 193. Following the service at the Funeral Chapel, the burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery, Galena. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.furlongfuneralchapel.com. Now we remember Robert Bob Curler, age 86, of Dubuque, who died on Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. Visitation will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Saturday, January the 27th, at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Cremation Service, 3860 Asbury Road in Dubuque. Now we remember Irene Clara Benke, age 86, of Asbury who finished her life journey at home on Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. Per Irene's wishes, private family services will be held at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. Burial will be at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque. In lieu of flowers and gifts, a memorial has been established for Hospice of Dubuque. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. Condolences can be sent to the family by visiting Irene's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. And we remember Priscilla J. Lugrain, age 31, of Dubuque, who died on Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Monday, January the 29th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Where services will follow, burial will take place in Resurrection Cemetery, and we remember Betty H. Kraus, age 97, lifelong resident of Dubuque, who passed away Tuesday, January the 2nd, 2024. Mass of Christian burial was private for immediate family. Entombment was at Resurrection Garden Mausoleum, Mount Calvary Cemetery. Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory is entrusted with arrangements. And then we have the following funeral services. Rick Becker of Piasta, Iowa. Services at 10.30 a.m. today. Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory at 3860 Asbury Road. George A. Ben of Dubuque. Visitation 3 to 6.30 p.m. today. Egelhoff Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory. 2659 John F. Kennedy Road. Interment Service, 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 26th, Mount Cavalry Cemetery Chapel. Susan L. Bonnet, East Dubuque, Illinois. Parish Scripture Service, 3.30 p.m. Friday, January 26th, Miller Funeral Home, East Dubuque. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday at the Funeral Home and from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 27th, St. Mary's Catholic Church, East Dubuque. Mass of Christian burial 10:30 a.m. Saturday at the church. Paul J Castle, Gladstone, Missouri, visitation 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday January the 27th, St. Joseph's Catholic Church, Key West Iowa. Mass of Christian burial 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Jennifer Daisy of Dubuque, celebration of life 4 p.m. Friday January the 26th. Denny's Lux Club. 3050 Asbury Road, Jerome A. Heffel, Dubuque, visitation 10 to noon, Saturday, January the 27th, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, service noon Saturday at the church. Linda M. Hertenstein, Gutenberg, Iowa, visitation 10 to 1130 a.m. Saturday, the January 27th, St. John Lutheran Church, Bellevue, Service, 11.30 a.m. Saturday at the church. Patricia A. Johnson of Dubuque. Visitation, 10 to 11.30 a.m. today. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road. Service, 11.30 a.m. today at the funeral home. Donna J. Less of Dubuque. Celebration of Life, 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, January the 27th. Happy's Place, 2323 Rockdale Road. Michael J. McKillop, Potosi, Wisconsin. Visitation 4 to 8 p.m. today and from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Friday, January the 26th, St. Andrew's Catholic Church, Tennyson. Mass, a Christian burial, 10.30 a.m. Friday at the church. Brenda A. McKinney, Galena, Illinois. Visitation 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. today, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena, Services two PM today at the funeral home. Mary Beth Muir trannell of Bellevue Visitation three to six thirty PM today. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory twenty five ninety five Rockdale Road service six thirty PM today at the funeral home. Chuck O'Neill Lead Mine, Wisconsin, Memorial Mass eleven AM today at Saint Matthew's Catholic Church, Scholesburg. <clears throat> followed by a celebration of life at the Berg shellsburg Richard H. Rowling, Schultzburg, Wisconsin. Service 11 a.m. Saturday, January the 27th. Hodden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cuba City, Wisconsin. Keith L. Roth of Dubuque. Visitation 9.45 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. Monday, January the 29th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in East Dubuque, Illinois. Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Monday at the church. Sarah E. Smith of Dubuque, Visitation, 8.30 to 11 a.m. Saturday, January the 27th at St. Anthony Catholic Church. Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Mary Alice Stallings, Savannah, Illinois, Celebration of Life, 1 to 3 p.m. Sunday, January the 28th, Manny's Pizza in Savannah. Mary Jane Vossen, of Dubuque, prayer service, 2.45 p.m., followed by visitation until 7 p.m. today at Holy Trinity Catholic Church, Mass of Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 26th at the church. Trudy R. Vogt of Gutenberg, Iowa, visitation 9.30 to 10.45 a.m. Saturday, January 27th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Gutenberg, service 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. And Mary Catherine Zapf of Dubuque service 10 a.m. Saturday, January the 27th, St. Columbkill Catholic Church. Now we'll move on to the sports page, and our top story is the Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week. It's entitled Lawrence Breaks Cascade Single Game Scoring Mark. It's written by Shannon Mum. Cascades Jackson Lawrence shot the lights out of the gym last Saturday. Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week set a single game program record by scoring forty seven points in a ninety four to seventy five victory over Wilton. The junior guard went seventeen for twenty two from the field, including ten for twelve from three point range, which was also a school record for made trays in a game. We had no idea he had scored that many points after the game. Cascade coach Nate McMullen said. I looked at my phone and saw I had about 25 texts and Twitter notifications and then realized he had broken the record with 47. It was a heck of a performance and he did it in a variety of ways. Added Lawrence, I made my first couple of shots and thought, man, I'm feeling good tonight. And my teammates just kept finding me. Lawrence broke the previous record of 46 points in a game by current Creighton University coach Greg McDermott four decades ago. Lawrence said that he was surprised that the Division I coach messaged him following the game. He reached out to me on Twitter, which was really cool, Lawrence said. It was pretty fun that all that happened, and I celebrated it for a little bit, but then it was right back to preparing for our next game. Lawrence has played a vital role in the Cougars' recent success. He is averaging 22.4 points, 3.8 rebounds, 1.9 assists, and 2.7 steals per game, And helped the Cougars win five games in a span of six days last week. The way he understands the game and is able to read things, it's his biggest strength as a basketball player, McMullen said. He sees things happen on the court before they actually happen. It's pretty special to watch. Lawrence, who has three older brothers who also played basketball, said he developed a love for the game at an early age. I love the hard work that comes in the off season," he said. Not a lot of people will put in the work, but I love to see when that extra effort pays off. I love the atmosphere at basketball games, and I love how my coaches push me to be the best player I can be. Lawrence is in his third year playing for the varsity and averaged 18.1 points per game as a sophomore. Last year, I was still a young player, and I didn't really step into a leadership role yet, he said. This year, I have gained more confidence, and I knew coming in that I was going to be looked at as a leader. Added McMullen, the development and growth he's shown over the past year has been tremendous. He is constantly in the gym and watching film. He's developed into a great young man and a fabulous teammate. In men's college basketball, Coe halts Loris streak. Duhok's 13-game winning streak comes to an end at home. This is written by Tom Gregory. Jackson Molstead was ready for Coe, and the fifth-year Loras College Guard will be ready again if given the chance. Despite Molstead and the other Dewhawks' valiant efforts, Coe rallied past Loras, 84-73 on Wednesday, in a battle for first place in the American Rivers Conference between nationally ranked NCAA Division III teams. Coe ranked number 23, improved to 17 wins and two losses overall, and nine wins, one loss in conference play. The 25th-ranked Duhawks dropped to 15 wins and two losses, six and two in conference play. The Duhawks, whose last three losses have all come to Coe, controlled most of the game until the final nine minutes and 32 seconds of the game, when Coe outscored Laura's 26 to 16. We started out hot," said Molstead, who dropped 16 points in the game. But Coe is a very good team, and we just couldn't put them away. I hope we see them again. I definitely think we will, and next time, hopefully, we'll get them. The game featured 10 lead changes and seven ties in the game, and the game, in large part, was a worthy sequel to the last two meetings between the two. Coe's two-point win in November in Cedar Rapids and Loris's heartbreaking home court loss last year. In last year's ARC tournament title game. Loris, which had won 13 straight, jumped out to a 16-9 lead five minutes into the game behind four Molstead three-pointers, the last of which sent the Loris crowd into a frenzy. Such dominance was short-lived as the main culprits from Coe's last two wins in the series were back at it again. Coe's six-foot-six mountain T.J. Schner and dubuque Wallert grad Kale Schmidt sparked a pair of 6-2 runs by the Cohawks to pull back in it, and the rest of the first half was another classic back-and-forth affair. Gavin Sarvis nailed back-to-back three-pointers for Loris to keep the Dewhawks in front for the majority of the opening half. But Coe's Bennett Sherry drilled a three-pointer with eight minutes left in the half, sparking a run of four straight successful field goals for the Kohawks, to catapult them in front thirty two to thirty. Sarvis hit another three for Loris with three minutes eighteen seconds left before halftime, and Ali Sabbat and Molstead combined for ten points in the final five minutes to help Loris inch ahead at halftime, forty one to forty. Tyler Bass opened the second half with two straight buckets, including a backdoor slam to ignite the crowd yet again. Ko, meanwhile, was scoreless for over three minutes to start the half as Loris matched its biggest lead when it went up 51-43. But Schmidt and Schnur continually pulled Ko off the mat. The duo combined for all of Ko's points during a pivotal 11-2 run that put Ko ahead 54-53 at the 12-23 minute 23 second mark. Loris regained the lead briefly, but Coe went on a 7-0 run to reclaim control. It was a lead they would not relinquish as the Cohawks really heated up. Coe connected on 6-7 shots during another key run that suddenly had the Dewhawks down by 11, 78-67. Sabit scored 11 of Loris' last 13 points as the Dewhawks tried to climb back. Sabit shared game-high honors with Schmidt with 21 points. Sarvis added 14 for Loris, while Schnurr had 18 for Coe. Coe's got a really good team, Molstead said. Schmidt and Schnurr are great players. We just, can, we just can't hang our heads and let this turn into something. We've got some big games ahead. And in women's college basketball, Hawks win at Horn. This is written by Steve Stoles of the Telegraph Herald. Loris forward, Madison Haslow knew exactly what she was going to do when she received the inbound pass with four seconds left in a tie game with Coe. Haslow broke to the top of the key to catch the inbound pass and immediately drove hard down the left side of the lane for a game-winning layup with .3 seconds left to give the Dewhawks a dramatic 60-58 to win Wednesday night at the Lillis Athletic and Wellness Center. The wind kept Loris all alone in second place behind Wartburg in the American Rivers Conference. On a night where Loris shot miserably from the field after the first four minutes of the game, Haslow was not afraid of the moment. Believe it or not, the last play was exactly what we drew up during the last timeout, Haslow said. Our first play was different, but once we saw they were double-teaming Sammy Martin, we changed on the fly. My plan was to take it all the way to the basket. Coach Justin Bush has a lot of faith in me, and it's a good feeling to have a coach that trusts you to take a shot with the game on the line. Loris got off to such a fast start, it did not look like any last-second heroics would be needed. The Dewhawks jumped out to a 13-2 lead in the first seven minutes, hitting seven of their first nine shots. However, just as quickly, Loris turned stone cold, missing 10 straight with two turnovers to limp to the end of the quarter with only a 15-8 to lead. Loris reached their high-water mark of the game at 27-15 to on a drive and basket by Daniella Jarrett with 3 minutes 34 seconds left in the half. Coe made a rare four-point play when Ellie Wisner was fouled on a made three-point basket and added the free throw to cut the deficit to 27-21. A three-point play by co-post player Kalen Peterson with 4.5 seconds left in the half shrunk the Loras lead to 35-27. Loras kept the lead the whole third quarter. A basket in the lane and a three-pointer by guard Silvana Scarcella in the last minute gave the Dewhawks a 49-41 lead after three quarters. The start of the fourth quarter turned into a horror show for Loris as Coe went on a 13-1 run. Coe took its first lead at the five minute 52nd mark on a basket by Wisner. Gerald hit a driving shot clock buzz shot clock buzzer beater with two twenty-five left to give Loris a 56-54 lead. Coe hit two baskets for a 58-56 lead, and Loris's Scarsella tied the game for the Dewhawks with 34 seconds left with a basket from the right corner. It looked like Coe would hold the ball for the last shot, but a charging foul by Coe's Taylor Brunson gave Loris the ball back with four seconds to play. Everything we practiced since our last game happened tonight, Bush said. We spent a couple of days working on how to start faster, which we did. We also worked on end-of-game situations, so we were prepared for both things. Now I guess we need to work more on the middle part of the game. In another men's college basketball game, Terps hold off Hawks. Jameer Young scored eight of his 22 points inside the final 86 seconds that included the game winner with 1.5 seconds to play, and Maryland rallied late to beat Iowa 69-67 on Wednesday night at Carver Hawkeye Arena. Maryland closed on a 12-4 run. Young's three-pointer capped a 7-0 spurt with a 1.24 left, and his second three in the stretch gave the Terrapins a 67-65 lead with 38 seconds left. Iowa's Tony Perkins tied it at 67 with a pair of free throws before Young drove the lane and made a left-handed layup off the glass to cap the scoring. Young was 7-15 shooting with three threes, and was 5-6 from the line. He also had 7 rebounds and a game-high 4 assists. Julian Reese scored 17 points and grabbed 9 rebounds for Maryland, which ended a 2-game skid. Donta Scott chipped in 14 points. Perkins made 4 of 9 field goals in all 11 of his free throws and finished with 20 points to lead Iowa. Owen Freeman added 14 points and 9 rebounds. Young and Reese combined for 11 points and Scott hit a 3-pointer during a 14-4 run that gave Maryland a 46-45 lead with 12 minutes and 9 seconds to play, its first since the opening minutes. It was tied three more times before Peyton Sanford's jumper capped a 9-2 spurt to give Iowa a 61-54 advantage with 5 minutes 44 seconds remaining. It was the Hawkeyes' last field goal of the game, with Perkins scoring their last six points from the line. Maryland hosts Nebraska on Saturday. Iowa will look to snap a two-game losing streak when it plays at Michigan on Saturday. In boys' high school basketball, Warriors clip Galena. This is written by Danny Miller, and the dateline is East Dubuque, Illinois. Head coach Scott Shaber sensed a laser-like focus from his team prior to tip-off, even more so than what inherently comes with an intense rivalry matchup. Dedicating the night as a fundraiser to Nathan Powers, the 19-year-old son of East Dubuque Junior High teacher Don Amer Powers, who was seriously injured three months ago in a motorcycle accident, the Warriors used a red-hot first quarter and fended several Galena surges to defeat the Pirates 61-52 on Wednesday at Galena High School. I think watching Nate Powers over there and sensing everything he is going through, I saw a different look when we broke the huddle to start the game, Shaver said. We came out firing on all cylinders. The fundraiser included a silent auction, donations, and a fifty-fifty raffle that raised nearly $2,000 towards Powers' recovery efforts. A local business donated $1,000 for every East Dubuque three-pointer during the game, totaling $6,000. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, God's Playback. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind.